Hello and welcome to Cocoa Pods, a podcast of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. Today, we are fortunate to have Erin Owens with us. Erin will be graduating from Georgia Southern with a double major in international studies and modern languages. She has published a paper on the significance of the lavender scare and has participated in a conference on the impact of the feminist method on eating disorder treatment. She will begin law school in the fall and plan on focusing on human rights law. Welcome, Erin. Thank you so much for having me. Erin is an advocate for sex health and a co-founder of the Students for Comprehensive Sex Education. Erin, can you tell us something about your journey so far with your education? Yeah, absolutely. So I went to middle, elementary, and high school all right here in Forsyth. Um, And then from here, I took a year at UGA and then transferred over to Georgia Southern to finish up my degrees. In the fall, I'll be starting at Notre Dame Law School. So it's been a wild ride, but it's been good. (laughs) Congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate it. Now, can you tell us about the lavender scare? What is that about? Yeah, absolutely. So that's one of my personal like passions is learning about that because so many people don't know about it. So during the Cold War, most people have heard of the Red Scare, where there was this idea that communists were infiltrating society, infiltrating the government. But at the same time, you also had the Lavender Scare, which was the idea that people of the LGBT community were infiltrating the government and were secret communists trying to take over. And it's not really talked about a lot because it is such like a niche idea, but it was highly propagated at the time. Um, A lot of laws came out about it. And my interest was kind of in the overall impact on the LGBT community following the Lavender Scare. So it's definitely an interesting subject. Wow, wow. And also you did participate in the conference on the impact of the feminist method on eating disorder treatment. Can you tell us some about that? Yeah, absolutely. So that's another thing that I'm pretty interested in. So the feminist method with eating disorder treatment is basically the idea that one of the ways we can treat eating disorders such as like anorexia nervosa is by applying the feminist method of having the patient kind of break up the societal ideas in their mind and kind of really examine why they think the way they do. And it's a way to take the blame off the patient and kind of get them to examine the societal impact of why they think about gender the way they do, why they think of weight loss the way they do, in order to kind of alleviate some of the symptoms of eating disorders. Wow, thank you. Now, we know that sexuality is a fundamental aspect of being human, and sexual activity is a basic part of human development, and that all young people deserve high-quality sex education and sexual health care yet not all of them have access to these vital resources. And we know that the schools have talked about abstinence only until marriage, school-based sexuality education. We also know that there's a stigma around adolescent sexuality and dismissal of young people's sexual health needs. And we know that teen pregnancy is an issue in America. And the current in 2020, the incidence of teen pregnancy and teen births was uh, 17.4 deliveries per 1,000 females ages 15 to 19. And even though these statistics show that the percentage is dropping, but it's still a problem, And when a teen mother does get pregnant, there are complications for both the mother 
and the baby. You know, the mother could have a difficult pregnancy. She could have medical complications like high blood pressure leading to abnormal swelling and preeclampsia. She could have what we call cephalopelvic disproportion because her pelvis is too small or is not ready for the baby and she might end up having a C-section. She could have depression just from being pregnant and young. She could have low blood count from possibly not eating well. And the babies of the teen mothers could come prematurely. They could have preterm delivery. The babies could be small. And the babies actually do have a higher incidence of just peri and post neonatal mortality, that is the babies could die suddenly, including from sudden infant death syndrome. So we want to be able to speak more to adolescent sexuality. As a co-founder, you are a co-founder of the Students for Comprehensive Sex Education. Can you speak to some of the things that you have done just to what you've seen and what has made you do what you do or even started what you started? Right. So um, when we were in middle school through high school, we received absence-based sex education. And I know a lot of us kind of already had a few issues with it. I know I personally really disagreed with the idea that, oh, if as girls, if you guys have sex, you're like chewed gum, you're like a used car, like why buy the cow and you can get the milk for free? So that always kind of sat with me in the wrong way. And then in high school, Kirsten Wilder and the rest of the co-founders and I sat through our senior year absence-only sex education, and we just decided that this is just like not sitting right with us. So we started looking into the books and their statistics, realized a lot of the statistics are either outdated or um, they're not relevant anymore, or there's no good citation for them. So we started writing to like the school board. We talked to the principal. We tried to figure out a way to alleviate some of the impact of this. And so we ended up emailing another school County that uses more comprehensive sex education came up with a plan to switch over to a different program that would be more comprehensive. And we held um, a forum in the middle of town to kind of invite everyone and kind of explain our position on it. So it was definitely um, a cool experience. So you, you speak to comprehensive sex education, that is you discussion of use of condoms, other contraceptives, and that it's a more effective way of preventing teen pregnancy with respect to just giving the individual teen members agency and freedom and give them the information that they need to make healthy choices. So can you speak more to these comprehensive sex education programs? Absolutely. So um, one of the things we were kind of looking for in a comprehensive sex education program is the discussion of safe sex practices. And that's not to completely, like they mentioned abstinence as well as an option for safe sex, but they give a little bit more of a comprehensive view of how to be safe in sexuality. And they also had a big section on consent, which was something that our program that we went through was kind of missing. And we thought that was a very, very relevant and important topic that got left out of our education with this. And I think one of the things that people forget is the only time in our lives that we've ever sat down in a big group and have like that formalized education on um, sex health was in high school. So it's not just teaching teenagers about this stuff. It's the information that'll carry through the rest of their life, because at some point, most people do end up having sex. So it's important for them to have that opportunity to actually learn what it means to have safe sex, what it means to be able to consent and what it means to respect other people. 
in a sexual environment. Wow. So in 2011 to 2013, talking about how to say no, consent, 82% of females and 84% of males aged 15 to 19 received formal instruction about how to say no to sex. And about 60% of females and 55% of males received instruction about birth control methods. This is from the Gottmacher Institute. Is consent a big issue when it comes to sex education and sex? I believe it is, especially for like younger people, because a lot of what we got is like, just say no all the time. And there wasn't really that discussion of the nuances of, well, you know, maybe I want to have sex with this person, but we break up and I don't want to have sex with anyone else right now. Or we've had sex before, but I don't want to have sex right now. There were none of those nuances on how to understand what is okay and what is not okay. And there were no discussions of, hey, you can remove recall consent at any time, you know, or you can recall consent from kissing, not just sex. And it kind of missed a lot of those nuances that I think are necessary in order to keep our young people safe. So you're basically saying, saying no is no. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Erin, a lot of these schools have promoted the abstinence only until marriage school-based sexuality education. And as a student on the receiving end, can you tell, speak to some of the pitfalls of this program you know, and some of the benefits of the program. Right, absolutely. So I'll speak first a little bit on the benefits because I do believe that abstinence is a very valid choice. I think it's a great choice, especially for teenagers because there are a lot of like emotional complications that can arise. It's the best way to avoid teen pregnancy and STDs. However, I feel like in preaching abstinence only, the issue with that is you're ignoring a lot of the real life situations that people encounter. You can tell people that absence is the only way. That doesn't mean that everyone's going to follow that. And a lot of the manners in which they promoted absence only education were incorrect or outdated. I remember, I think it was sophomore, junior year, we had a gentleman come in and hand us out like these flyers about effectiveness of different birth controls. And I noticed that the numbers weren't adding up to what I had heard because I'd always heard, you know, if used correctly, condom protection rate against STDs and pregnancies in the upper 90s. And this one was saying like 60% effective or something crazy like that when used correctly. And so I ended up looking it up afterwards and he was using the statistics for animal scone condoms, which I've never seen. Most people I know have never seen. And so they use these statistics in a way that manipulates the data in order to just, it's supposed to discourage people from having sex, but instead, you know, if a teen sees this flyer and it's like, well, condoms aren't effective anyway, why use one? And they're still having sex. That's where it kind of propagates this unsafe sexual practices. And a lot of it too is just the kind of idea that boys, these teen boys always want to have sex. The girls never want to have sex. So girls, it's always on you to kind of tell the boys, no, it's all on you whether you have sex or not, because the guys always want to have it. And I just feel like these kind of like stereotypes are very harmful, both for the men and for the women. I think teen boys are incredibly emotional, emotionally capable of saying no or holding themselves accountable. So I think we kind of do our boys a disservice by saying that they can't control themselves. And I think we do our girls a disservice by saying they have to control the boys. So a big part of it for us was the statistics, the issues with the statistics, the issues with the rhetoric used, and just overall the ineffectiveness of the program. 
So you spoke to some of the benefits in that, you know, it's one of the best ways in preventing teen pregnancy. And some of the pitfalls was that it, it wasn't speaking to everybody. And so you guys decided to form this program that you started. So how many people were in the founding of this program, in the creation of this program? And what impact ha has it had? So the original founders were me, Kirsten Wilder, of course, um, her sister, Kristen, and then Lindsay and Sharon Kinsella. And I think it was a really good way to kind of start the conversation off because it had been something where I know past students hadn't really, it, the absence only sex education hadn't really been popular, but no one really kind of formed together to talk about it. Um, so I think the biggest thing was being able to kind of start that conversation and hopefully Eventually, it'll be changed. As far as I know now, they're still doing absence-only sex education, but we're kind of just hoping to open people's eyes that, hey, this program not, might not be the best idea. And also for the students that we actually went to high school with, kind of just pointing out that you can't take all the statistics from this program and treat them as fact because as of right now, they're not. Um, so you have to kind of do your own research from reputable sources, .gov sites, medically supported evidence to kind of make the best decision for yourself. So some of the people that you guys were students, you were high school students when you started this. So you must, it must have really, the information that was given to you must have really impacted you such that you got up and you felt that you had to do something about it. And do you think the people giving you the information, which I presume were probably not fellow students, but were like teachers and people in the system, do you think they they listen back? Do you think they, they're getting the feedback that we're smart, we're going to research everything that's been said to us and if it doesn't add up, we'll look at other avenues to educate ourselves? I feel like we had a lot of good support from several of our teachers. The principal was very supportive and whether or not they agreed with doing comprehensive sex education, they definitely appreciated the fact that we had worked really hard on fielding our research, coming up with an adequate program to exchange it. I know not everyone was a big fan of it. A lot of people were kind of stuck in the idea that absence-only education is the only way. And there was kind of this idea that, oh, if you push for comprehensive sex education, you're just giving teenagers a green light to have sex, which wasn't the point at all but it's something that can be easily misconstrued. But overall, we had, we had a good amount of support from the school itself. And a lot of studies have shown that from the comprehensive sex education that, you know, teenagers and young people were actually empowered. They had knowledge of, if I make this decision, these are the consequences. And so because they had that knowledge, they were able to make decisions that they were comfortable with. Exactly. Exactly. I think it's really important for students to have all the information, especially because, you know, this is the information that will carry them through the rest of their lives. If they start out when they're very young, knowing, okay, this is how I need to protect myself. This is how I can apply consent or remove consent from a situation. This is how I can treat myself and other people with respect regarding sexuality. That sets them up for a better chance at having a healthy sex life throughout the rest of their lives. So, you know, Congress does have a say in this. And in 2019, federal lawmakers reintroduced two complementary bills, the Real Education for Healthy Youth Act, RIA, 
and the Youth Access to Sexual Health Services Act that would address this need of comprehensive sexual education by expanding the sexual health information and services that are available to young people. REHA would ensure funding for comprehensive sex education programs while the Youth Access to Sexual Health Services Act would primarily support access to sexual and reproductive health care and related services, both focus on groups that have been historically marginalized in social, economic, and medical settings, that is young people of color, LGBTQ plus youth, immigrants, and adolescents in juvenile detention, amongst others. These bills offer alternatives to the abstinence-only programs. Now, Erin, I just want you to speak to just the fact that we do have government legislation, bills that offer alternatives, and how that has been helping those are excellent bills, and I think that for us, at least in our community, a big reason that we had abstinence-only education is because a local business was the one kind of buying the books and kind of supporting financially the program, and they were not willing at all to hear about comprehensive sex education. They didn't want to implement it, and so that was a big issue with us trying to change over our school's approach to sex education was the fact that the funding wasn't there. And I know it's especially important for marginalized communities. I can speak as like a member of the LGBT community that when we were sitting through sex education, there was no information on safe sex for queer individuals. And that's especially important because queer men, especially younger queer men, have much higher rates of STDs because and part of the reason for that is because they're not taught safe sex practices and they might not understand fully how important that kind of thing is. So I definitely think that those bills are paramount to improving the situation in our country. Both bills address young people's sexual health needs by centering medically accurate and complete information, inclusive and age-appropriate information and services and healthy communication and relationships. And there's a need for federal leadership because some state sex education laws are still incomplete. For instance, 24 states do not require sex education to be age appropriate. 29 states do not require sex education to cover healthy relationships. 33 states and the District of Columbia do not require sex education to be medically accurate. 41 states do not require sex education to be culturally appropriate and unbiased. And so I'm glad you spoke to that because the information needs to be accurate. You talked about statistics in which you felt just listening that this has got to be not too accurate. And so, you know, I just want you to speak to how you would encourage young people, especially with the information that they get to, to research further and places they can go to for research so that they can verify the information that is being given to them. Right. I think um, the biggest thing is is to make sure the sites you're going on are reputable or the information you're getting is reputable and up to date. I know in, in our school, we kind of learned how to research effectively, you know, go to the .gov sites and things that weren't centered around sex education, but the same thing is true for sex education. Um, and I would encourage people to kind of take anything your friends say with a grain of salt. If 
they're just kind of saying random things about sex health because there are a lot of myths that get propagated through um, teenage circles about, you know, oh, well, if you wear two condoms, it's better. Well, no, you got to look that up, make sure that you know your information uh, because a lot of these can actually be harmful. And I would encourage them to talk to nurses, talk to doctors. Um, There are ways to talk to doctors if you don't want your parents to know, just Ask to speak to your doctor alone for a minute, see if they have any information, because this is kind of the chance for young people to take their health and their bodies into their own control and make sure that you are making informed decisions, no matter whether you choose abstinence or you choose to be sexually active. Wow. Thank you so much. Thank you. So, Erin, can you speak to us about how prevalent abstinence only until marriage, sexual education is in young people? How how well is it accepted? And, you know, what are the characteristics of the proponents for abstinence-only sex education? Right. So my experience in high school with starting or helping to start Students for Comprehensive Sex Education, um, we talked about it a lot with our friend groups or in our classes. And you definitely had students who were Um, more pro-abstinence education, but the vast majority that I talked to who had personal plans to stay abstinent until marriage weren't necessarily looking to push that on other people. Most of the people who I've talked to who are proponents of abstinence-only sex education are of an older generation. And my personal opinion is they're probably really uncomfortable talking about things like condoms to teenagers, which... I can understand to some point, but it's also denying our students the right to make their own choices about their bodies. So the main factors I kind of saw when talking to these adults who didn't want to have comprehensive sex education is they kind of thought that too much knowledge for young people would lead them to make bad decisions. It was kind of this idea that sex before marriage was just wrong in any case. It didn't matter. You know, I remember asking at one point, like, oh, what if you've been dating this person for like 10 years and you just don't want to get married? And it was kind of like a no, you need to wait until you're married. So yeah, there are a lot of intersections in between morality and the idea of absence only education, which I think can be problematic when you should be teaching a class that's more based on science and making informed decisions. Um, Because giving students knowledge is not pushing them to make bad decisions. You're simply trusting them enough to have this information to be able to make the best decisions for themselves. Wow, that's a strong point. And so, but amongst the teenagers in school then, if you were to put a percentage, what percentage of the students were proponents for abstinence-only sexual education? Right. Well, our statistics might be a little bit different because we are in rural Georgia, but maybe like out of the people we actually talked to, maybe like 10, 15% were a big fan of absence only education. A lot of people also just didn't care in general. They just kind of saw sex ed as a way to get out of English class or whatever. But the majority of students we talked to were excited about the fact that they might be able to hear comprehensive sex education and not just for themselves, but also for future generations coming up through the school. Because that was a big factor as well as making sure this was changed for future generations to try to help the most amount of people as possible. Wow, wow. I wanted to laugh about getting out of science to go to <laughs> sex ed. Just like, I don't want to do math. I'm going to sex ed class. <laughs> oh my goodness. This is this is great information. Now, another thing I want to ask you, you know, times have changed. You know, because when I look at when I was in high school several years ago, I mean, I don't think we even had sex education. 
I don't, you know, I mean, we had biology class and we're all like, ooh, you know, and all this. So did you guys ever look into how times have changed? Like how the progression of, because the, the, the young people want to talk more and they know more than their parents think they know. You know what I'm saying? And things have just changed. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when we started our program, I like remember going to my mom and dad and being like, what was, you know, sex ed like when you were in high school and they're in their 60s now. And so they were kind of like, we we didn't have that. Like that wasn't a thing. And it kind of got me thinking because one of the main arguments people would use for absence only education was like, oh, well, if you want to, you know, have comprehensive sex education, you got to ask your parents about safe sex practices. And I was thinking, well, they never had a class on it. So how are we supposed to learn from them? And so it, it's definitely interesting to see. And I think it, it shows some progress that even with the generation now, because we've been out of school for five years now, or out of high school anyway, you, you continuously see these changes to try to make information more accessible to students. And I think that's great. And so many of these initiatives and the people talking about this are young people, which I think is a great way to get more students involved and to really give them a voice within their school system. I want to pivot back into your career. You're going to be a lawyer and you are such an eloquent speaker and you're going to be going into human rights. I mean, can you speak to you mean, some of the things that generated your interest in, first of all, law and in even that aspect of law? Yeah, absolutely. So a main impact for me was kind of looking at the statistics with drug use and crime was a major thing for me because something, I don't remember the statistic right off the top of my head, but something like 77% of crimes the individual who perpetrated the crime either had alcohol or drugs in their system or had a history with alcohol and drugs, excessive use. And so I, that kind of got me thinking. And I started looking in more to the different lengths of time people could spend in prison for drug crimes based on things like race or socioeconomic status. And, you know, I grew up in a family around law enforcement and around um, people in the criminal justice system. And so I kind of saw it from that perspective too. And it just kind of was one of those things where, I'm really passionate about trying to make our criminal justice system a little bit more equitable than it is now. I think there are a lot of issues with our criminal justice system. And I think that working with human rights law is a good way to kind of make things a little bit more equal. I also went to a forum hosted by the Georgia Justice Project, which is in Atlanta, which works to, one, pass legislation, especially for minority groups that are unfairly targeted, and also to help people who are getting out of prison achieve employment, um, get back to life. And so that was something that was really pivotal in me deciding to go to law school as well. Wow. I, you know, I wish you success in law school. Thank you. I, I appreciate mean, you know, it. You, <laughs> Remind me of a younger me, you know, just <laughs> um, just wanting to change things in the world. And we can. We can turn the wheel slowly, you know. And so good luck with that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Erin, so much for coming to Cocoa Pods and just, you know, sharing with us about some issues of uh, sex education. And we just wish you luck with your career. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Thank you so much.